Guys, let's turn to uh, Acts chapter 18. And uh, we are in the midst of following the apostle to major urban areas. Uh, We saw his encounter in Athens two weeks ago. Uh, We looked at his encounter with Corinth last time. And today we look at his encounter with Ephesus. You can see that this is very intentional, both on Paul's part and it's intentional on Luke's part to show us the the sort of urban uh, metropolitan strategy of the Apostle Paul. He goes to the major population centers, which are cultural centers, transportation centers, intellectual centers, and uh, religious centers. He goes there and takes, takes things on at the center and makes disciples. And then they go out through the highways and the byways, radiating from those major metropolitan areas to reach all of the, all of the villages. So Paul would have said that he had reached Achaia because he had been in Corinth and Centria. He would have said he would have reached Greece because he was in Athens and led some people to Christ. And, of course, we know later a church was planted. He would say that he had reached Macedonia because he had been to Philippi and Thessalonica in particular. And now he's going to reach Asia Minor uh, by going to Ephesus. So the same would be true today. We have these major population centers. And we've uh, those of you at Second Presbyterian who were at our World Missions Conference uh, know that we we were emphasizing that in this year's conference, how these major urban areas are booming around the world. We're at 50% of the world's population right now in cities. And 200 years ago, it was only 3 to 5% in cities. So the cities are really booming. They're more strategic than ever. We go to those cultural centers, political centers, artistic centers, intellectual centers. And there we find... Uh, the eth- ethnic groups from around the region will migrate to the city, so we're reaching all the ethnic groups, major and minor ethnic groups, and then they radiate from there into the villages that are more provincial uh, and uh, which are uh, more likely to receive the gospel from someone from their own ethnic group. But in the cities, we can work uh, more uh, easily cross-culturally because outsiders are more welcomed and so on. Paul's using this strategy. Uh, you notice that Stott emphasizes that in his own commentary when he summarizes Paul's urban strategy. So we're going to another city today in Ephesus, and uh, there are some distinctive things about this study that we're going to see. Now, whenever Paul goes into a culture, whether it's the one in Macedonia or the one in Athens or the one in Corinth, There's a particular religious culture there. There's an intellectual culture. And uh, what we've seen is that when the gospel goes into any area, it challenges everything about that culture, everything about that uh, that, uh, religious uh, tradition. And certainly this is going to be true in Ephesus. There's a major clash. It's uh, what they some missiologists call a power encounter because it involves even the spiritual powers. Uh, And every culture has spiritual powers, even the most atheistic cultures, Bulgaria uh, or uh, Czechoslovakia or uh, or the the old Czechoslovak, Czech Republic, uh, or um, 
other places that it really sought to be strictly secularized. You'll find that there are spiritual realities there. When the gospel goes there, it confronts these spiritual realities. You certainly see it big time in the Muslim world. You see it big time in the Hindu world or the Buddhist world. There are spiritual realities, and there's a major power encounter when the gospel goes there. It's true in Memphis. Memphis has been encountered by the gospel for many years. And so there are some things that have have some institutions and traditions which have nicely accommodated uh, the gospel. Look, for example, at our musical tradition. Uh, what was Elvis, uh, Elvis known for? Uh, probably more than anything were his hymns, his gospel songs. Now, people have debated, was Elvis a believer? Well, that's not the point. It's the, the musical industry that, that accommodates the gospel in some way. And the gospel's been here for a number of years, and it's affected everything that way, so that around the edges of the gospel is accommodated because of the political majority of the people uh, being Christian. But even then, we know that that's just an outward accommodation, that down deep inside where the issues of the heart dwell, there are some major encounters that the gospel undertakes every day. It, it undertakes encounters in our own lives. For example, our greed, our longing for power and prestige and popularity, uh, the sexualized culture, and the, the idea that we should have freedom to have sex with whomever we want to, whenever we want to, that's severely challenged by the gospel. So things that we hold dear are challenged by the gospel, and that's been true everywhere the gospel goes. goes. Every culture has its own inherent beauty. And many things about culture are amoral. They're neither right nor wrong. They just are. But at the same time, in every culture, there are things that are right and wrong. And those things that are wrong need to be challenged and are challenged by the gospel. We're going to see that big time in Ephesus. So let's begin our reading with verse 19 in chapter 18, where we left off last time. Remember that uh, Paul stayed uh, many days longer. In Corinth, and then verse 18, took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Centria, he had, his, had cut his hair for he was under a vow. Now, that, that was probably a Nazarite vow, and he was going to Jerusalem now. He's on his way to Jerusalem to take his cut hair from his Nazarite vow and to offer it as a sacrifice of worship. So we pick up with verse 19. And they came to Ephesus. So from Corinth, on his way to Jerusalem, He stops in Ephesus. They came to Ephesus and he left them. That would be Priscilla and Aquila. He left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, 
They took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Let's stop there, and uh, this will be the first section we want to examine. And uh, in this whole section, what we're seeing is that there's a, there's a god in Ephesus whose name is Artemis or Diana. Uh, same god, two different names. And here we want to see how Artemis gets his introduction, or she gets her introduction, rather, to Jesus. Artemis meets Jesus. And the first thing we want to see in these verses is that Artemis meets Jesus through Christian teachers. The gods of this world and the goddesses of this world meet Jesus through Christian teachers. Now, let me just back off for a minute and let's talk about Ephesus. Paul is obviously eager to get to Jerusalem. We'll see that. We see that in the text that they want him to stay, but he doesn't because he's made a religious vow. And if there's one thing, and it's about the only thing I can think of that's more important than evangelism uh, and staying in Ephesus to evangelize, it is worship. And when we make a vow of worship or we have a commitment to worship, that's more important than evangelism. It's more important for you to worship on the Lord's Day in your church than it is for you to evangelize your neighbor at that same time. Now, it's very important for you to evangelize your neighbor. That's the second most important thing in your life. But the first thing is worship. Paul's on his way to Jerusalem. However, he does make a stop in Ephesus. He's got time to do that. And he selects this city because it is an ancient, renowned city. It is the capital uh, culturally of that entire area. All the roads of Asia Minor come into Ephesus. It is the strategic place if you want to reach Asia Minor. And Paul would like to reach Asia Minor. So he's obviously going to cultivate his relationship with the Ephesians. Now, you remember on an uh, uh, earlier journey, at the beginning of the second missionary journey, he wanted to make his way to Ephesus, and the Lord didn't allow it. The Lord wanted him to go on to Macedonia, which he did, and then Achaia. Now he's coming back to where he couldn't go before. So you see, he, when the Lord redirects us, that doesn't mean that, that we're forever not to do, go somewhere. We keep trying to go back what seems to us to be the logical thing to do. So Paul goes back to Ephesus. Ephesus was a large city. Uh, demographers believe that there probably were a quarter of a million people, 250,000 people living in Ephesus. Back in 1869, we began to do some serious archaeological work there. It continues to this day, and now you can see some amazing ruins in Ephesus. In terms of uh, the cities uh, uh, that have been uh, rediscovered and dug out, Ephesus has to be one of my all-time favorites. It's amazing when you go there. You can just feel the city walking the old streets that have been recovered. And there is no present city of Ephesus, so it's like Corinth. It's kind of out in the middle of nowhere, so nothing's on top of it, like in Rome. You know, you're trying to re, you know, do archaeological digs in Rome. That gets really difficult when you've got subways and highways and buildings everywhere. But here, it's out in the open. And you can see this magnificent city uh, that was, even by the time of Paul, it had been founded thousands of years ago and even more particularly hundreds of years before the Apostle Paul began to have some great architecture there. One of the seven wonders of the world was in Ephesus, and that was the great temple of Diana or of Artemis. 
it was a magnificent structure. The, the size of the structure would be uh, the size of a football field uh, times a half. So the, the width of the temple would be about the width of a football field, and the length of it would be a football field and, and a half. So about 150 yards long, a little bit more, and about 55 yards wide, a little more. That's huge. Uh, the columns that went up on the outside of the temple, they were double columns. There was a, for example, the front of it had 36 columns across, 18 sets of two columns. These columns were 60 feet high, six stories high. It was made of marble. It was absolutely gorgeous. So they, they claimed that the temple of Artemis was the equivalent of the pyramids. The pyramids, of course, were one of the seven wonders of the world. So you had the Colossus in Rhodes, and you had the uh, Zeus uh, statue in Olympia, uh, the pyramids, and uh, these are the ancient seven wonders of the world. Temple of Artemis was one of them. So it was this, this tremendous religious center in the world. Now, of course, the Temple of Athena also was very famous. This would be even more famous. People would come from all over to have an experience just to see the Temple of Artemis. And, of course, you can imagine the tourist business that came out of that religious center was quite amazing as well and one of the primary sources of income for the city of Ephesus. It later, uh, after the time of Paul, just after his time, had the famous Library of Celsus. And if you go there now, you can actually see the front edifice of the great Library of Celsus there. So it, it was an academic area, religious area, cultural center. A great city, truly. So Paul goes there. Now, what I want us to notice, as we've said, is that this encounter, this is, this is Paul's first journey now into Ephesus, and this encounter begins with teaching. And we need to remember this. The encounter with any culture, I don't care where you are, your business, your neighborhood, if you're on a university campus, it all begins with teaching. And notice uh, A here, verse 19a, we train and deploy teachers. Why do I say that? Well, look at this first phrase. They came to Ephesus and Paul left Priscilla and Aquila there. Why does he say that? Well, Priscilla and Aquila, remember, had their tent-making business in Corinth. That's how Paul met Priscilla and Aquila. They were already believers. They're probably the only believers in town. Didn't take Paul long to find them. They build an alliance. They are, and, and Paul finds that Priscilla particularly is a serious student of the Bible. And he cultivates her as well as Aquila. And then he takes them with him as fellow missionaries. Paul knows all along he's going to have to hit and run. He's got to get to Jerusalem in time for probably what was the Feast of Passover. We're not quite sure here in the spring of 51, I believe it is, maybe 52, uh, trying to get to the Passover feast. And... Uh, he knows he's going to have a hit and run. So what's he going to do? He's going to take Priscilla and Aquila with him. He knows they can teach. So, yes, he leaves, but he leaves them there. And so when we are interested in the kingdom and affecting the things around us, we're always looking for teachers whom we can deploy and whom we can train. Now, why do I say this? So often when we think about our conversion to Christ, we'll use language like, you know, I accepted Jesus Christ as Savior. Or, uh, I got saved. Or, uh, 
I became a Christian or I was converted. Look with me, though, at the language that the Apostle Paul himself uses, and I think this is kind of common. Turn to Colossians, uh, which was written to a church Paul never visited. But uh, Colossians, by the way, Colossae would be a church that was reached or, or was established by Epaphras, who was evangelized in Ephesus. So Paul evangelized as Epaphras in Ephesus, and then he goes to Colossae to evangelize and establish the church. So Paul writes Colossians, writes them a letter, even though he never visited there that we know of. But look at verse 6. He says, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing. That's the gospel. As it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Now look how Paul is describing their religious conversion. He says, you heard the gospel, you understood the grace of God in truth. And then look at verse 7, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister and so on. He's, Paul is reminding them of their conversion when they, quote, accepted Christ. Now, accepted Christ, that phrase is never used in the Bible. But this one is, you learn Christ you learn the gospel. Epaphras was a teacher. He's an evangelist and a teacher. Uh, another example, you can look back at Ephesians uh, that Paul later wrote from prison to these dear people he's getting ready to visit here. And look in chapter 4, and Paul is speaking to them about the difference between the Christian life and their former way of life. And he says, now uh, this is uh, page 2269, uh, Ephesians 4, 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds, darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God, so on. They become callous, verse 19, giving themselves up to sensuality. Now look at verse 20. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Christ is learned. So when we go evangelizing, sharing Christ with our neighbor... We're going teaching. Yes, we make a proclamation. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. But then we teach of Christ. And people, I mean, I'm, I'm one of those. I came to know Christ through being taught Christ. And I don't know the exact moment when it happened, but I know what the means of it was. The means of my conversion was learning Christ, learning the gospel, learning the truths of the Bible. And so it's not just, you know, we often think of evangelism as being a once and done thing, but God says, uh, rather Christ says before he ascends, go into all the world and make disciples, make learners, make disciples. When Jesus bid the crowds come to him, he says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, he says. So to take the yoke of Jesus Christ on is to learn of him. That's how we come to know him. That's how we get converted. So in your own strategy about your friends who are not believers, you, know, you probably need a little Bible study that is only half made up of believers. And the other half are people who we might call seekers. And they need regular exposure to you, God's people, and they need regular exposure to God's word. And it's over a period of time where they see, they, they hear the truth from the scriptures shared among some men. And then they hear your testimony 
of how you try to take that truth and put it into practice. And they can look at you and say, well, you're a salesman, just a knucklehead, just like me. And yet you're following Christ and you're, you're surviving as a salesman. How do you do that? And they, they observe you and how you put the word into practice and see how it works. So they learn Christ through the scriptures and they learn Christ through people. Constant exposure to God's word, constant exposure to God's people. And that's the way we continue to grow. If you look, for example, in Acts chapter 2, you remember we studied there the first little picture of the church in the end of Acts chapter 2 after Pentecost came. The Spirit came and fashioned His church. And what do we find that they do? They devote themselves to what? The apostles' doctrine. They immediately devote themselves to learning. So we are in the business of training and deploying teachers. And the question is, are you seriously undertaking this yourself? Unless there's some serious reason why you can't pursue learning and teaching, every single one of us should be teachers. All of us. The prophetic spirit... The Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ has fallen upon His church. And Peter says, men and women will prophesy. They will be teachers. Every single one of us should aspire to be teachers. You say, well, that scares the jabbers out of me. Well, if you think by teaching we mean teaching amen Bible study or something like that, that's not what we mean. What we mean is in the realm where you have relationships, where people are asking you questions, where you have an opportunity to share what you believe. And largely that begins in your own families. And for those of you who are fathers, you are teachers. You're either good ones or bad ones. And fathers are meant to be good ones. And what does that mean? That means you've thought about the kingdom of God. You have this big framework in which you're operating. From that big framework that comes from the lordship of Christ, you have certain principles that you're putting into, into life. And when you interact with your children, you know how to ask them questions. And when they give answers that are not quite right, you say, well, have you ever thought about this? Have you ever thought about that? And you use the Socratic method with your children because you know the kingdom. You've been studying it, and now you're passing it on. It's those dinner time conversations which are perhaps the most important teaching moments you've got besides your own personal example. It begins there. Someone, uh, well, it was a third and fourth grade Sunday school class last week. Uh, I just go once a year to that particular class, and they always just have a series of questions. And boy, they ask some curveballs. I mean, how can God, well, the first one was, uh, how did God become God? You work on that this afternoon. Uh, and then uh, another one was, you know, if there, you know, basically, if there's a good God, why is there evil? You know, explain that one. And uh, you should have heard these answers I give these kids. They're just kind of looking at me, you know, kind of glazed over by the time I get through with them. But uh, uh, one of the questions was, how did you become a pastor? And uh, I hadn't really thought about that. I wasn't prepared, uh, but I, here's what I told them. And this is the truth. I became a Christian. And when I became a Christian, uh, then the church business became my business. And someone who is in leadership said, Wilson, uh, would you help out with the kids? Would you teach them? I'm going, I don't know anything. Let me see. I remember going to Sunday school when I was a kid. <laughs> you know, So I start off teaching the kids, and uh, they're always correcting me. I have Abraham married to Rachel, and, you know, 
I, you know, I, I, and Isaac married to Sarah, and I, just, I can't. And they're always saying, "Mr. Wilson, I think you know it's not that way." It's this way. Oh, sure, no problem. Yeah, you know. So I start off that way, and then, and then, I said, "You know what?" Uh, they asked me back. So I go back and teach again, and then. A few months later, someone says, Wilson, would you uh, help with the junior highs? I don't know why we always throw new Christians in with the junior highs. I think it's because they have short attention span and they forget readily. So uh, would you work with the junior highs? And I said, yes. And then, and then they asked me back. And then pretty soon someone said, Wilson, would you, would you teach this group of adults? Adults? <laughs> they, they really know stuff. I don't know, I don't know enough. Well, would you give it a try? I'll give it a try. And I continued because they, they asked me back. And then someone said, you know, the pastor's going to be gone this summer. Would you preach one of the Sunday evenings? I said, preach? Oh, my stars. I'm afraid I'll get struck with lightning. You know, you know. and uh, I did. And it was the worst sermon I ever preached in my life, honestly. First sermon was the, I laid an egg. It, it was awful. I, in fact, I vowed to God I'd never do that again. So I preached by breaking a vow I made to God. It was so bad. But they asked me back. And so you want to know why you do anything you do is because somebody asked you back. Now, there's an internal part of this, too, that you sense the Lord using you and you sense pleasure in honoring him through what you're doing. So there's an internal validation of what's going on. But primarily it's because someone asked you to do something, you have the opportunity to do it, and then they ask you back. So that's, that's how any of us get involved in ministry, whether paid or volunteer. It doesn't matter. They just ask you back. And you're willing to take the family business as your business. And however you can promote it, you promote it. Well, here's what we're learning. The number one way in which we promote the kingdom is that we communicate it through teaching the Word of God. That's the reason we're here this morning. We're trying to learn. And we're not just trying to learn so that we can be better educated sinners. We're trying to learn so that we can convey something important to the world around us and so that we can live this gospel out. That's the first thing the Apostle Paul is thinking about. I'm going to Ephesus. I'm checking out of there real fast, but I'm going to leave somebody behind who knows how to teach. That's the most important thing. Now, secondly, notice in the Apostle's life, we teach everywhere. So Paul does go into Ephesus himself. And what does he do? Well, as long as he's there, he's going to pull his old trick. He's going right into the synagogue. And there you can have discussions and reasoned debates, and he reasons with them. And they actually ask him to stay. They ask him back. That's how he gets to teach in the synagogue. He opens his mouth when someone asks him a question, and things begin, and then they ask him back. That's how he does it. So he reasons with the Jews. They ask him back, and he stays for a longer period, or he would have, but he declined because he had to go worship God. So he set sail from Ephesus, so he's out of there. But he starts in Ephesus in a, in a city that was known like Mecca. I mean, really, it's the equivalent of going to Mecca to evangelize. You think people love Muhammad? They loved Artemis. They were religiously devoted to Artemis. You were a traitor to everything in your family and in Ephesus, your city, and in your nation, if you undermined Artemis. And you could be put to death for it, just as if you were evangelizing in Mecca. Paul is in Mecca, 
evangelizing, teaching Jesus Christ and the kingdom. And then where does he go? Well, he goes to Caesarea. When he had landed at Caesarea, it says here he went up and greeted the church. Well, it says he went up. Most people think that means he went to Jerusalem, 65 miles away. But he goes to the established church, Caesarea, Jerusalem. Then what does he do? He goes to Antioch, and then he went down to Antioch. So, and once again, going down usually means to go down from Jerusalem because Jerusalem was elevated. So you go down to Antioch from Jerusalem. What's Antioch? It's this multi-ethnic Jew-Gentile church that was the staging ground of all three of Paul's missionary journeys. So he goes back to report there to teach. Teach what? Teach about the kingdom expanding and pushing to the very boundaries of the Roman Empire. He's going back to teach on missions to Antioch. And then where does he go? Well, he begins now his third missionary journey. We get that right in here in verse 20, 23. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. How does he strengthen them? Teaching them. Continuing to teach these people who had given their lives to Christ, teaching them, teaching them, teaching them. So Paul teaches everywhere he goes. The major metropolis, the mother church, the missionary sending church, the little churches he had planted, everywhere he goes, he teaches. And everywhere you go, you're teaching one way or the other. Now, notice uh, we not only uh, deploy teachers and teach everywhere, but we teach and encourage teachers. Verses 24 through 28, why do I say this? Well, first of all, notice this man, Apollos, in verse 24. He was an eloquent, learned, that word for eloquent could also be translated learned man. He was from Alexandria, which, as you know, is right on the northern a border of Egypt, and Alexandria was an intellectual center. There was a strong Jewish community there. There was a world-famous library in Alexandria, and it appears that Apollos was very familiar with it. He was eloquent in rhetoric, and he was competent in the scriptures, and he was a knowledgeable man. He, was, he would have been a man you would love to have heard speak. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. He was also, notice, Fervent in spirit. In, uh, notice that in verse 25. He was fervent in spirit. He spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. So here's a man who knew the Bible. He knew the basic story of Jesus Christ. He was a very eloquent and learned man. He was a man that anybody would want to, be, to listen to. Paul sometimes would compare himself to Apollos and admit, I'm no Apollos. I'm not eloquent. Uh, I don't have the same abilities that Apollos had. Apparently, Apollos was a very attractive man, too. Uh, in fact, he was so attractive that the Corinthians, who were somewhat of a uh, fleshly sort of group, and, and very uh, immature, uh, they decided that they wanted to follow Apollos, or they wanted to follow Peter, or they wanted to follow Paul, and they made parties within the church, almost like political parties, little religious groups within the church, based on who the leader was. Very leader-centered. And Paul, of course, told them that was a con complete denial of the gospel. But here notice uh, that he only knew the baptism of John. Now, that's an interesting statement. What this means is, apparently, that Apollos was not familiar with 
the Pentecost experience and not familiar with the baptism of Jesus Christ, either water baptism or spirit baptism of Jesus Christ. And we're going to see how that leaves us with a, an inadequate, insufficient gospel. We'll move on to that. But notice that uh, teachers need to be taught. So what happens? Uh, he speaks boldly in the synagogue, but when uh, verse 26, when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And Priscilla seems to be the major teacher here, but she did it with her husband and she did it in private, which is nice on the male ego that you're going to take us out of public. You're not going to correct us right here in this room, but when I need to be corrected, you just send me a nice little email. Say, Sandy, you said this, but you might consider that. And you've done that from time to time. It's been very helpful. And teachers have to be taught. The danger of being a teacher is that sometimes you'll say something that you think is right. It ends up you're wrong. And the problem is it can be very damaging to your little ego or your big ego when you find out you're wrong and you need to go back to your students and say, I got it wrong last time. So teachers have to cultivate humility, which is not my strong suit, but we have to cultivate humility because otherwise we'll never be able to be teachers because teachers are not always right. So uh, they took Apollos aside and they taught him privately and they taught him the way more accurately. And what was the more accurate way? Well, here's the more accurate way. Yes, indeed, Jesus died on the cross. And in that death, he paid for our sins. Yes, indeed, he was raised in the third day to everlasting life. And by his life, we have eternal life. So the big mystery of the work of Christ is the heart of the gospel. Apollos appeared to have that, and he preached it powerfully. And he showed clearly to the Jews in the synagogue how the Old Testament itself testified to this. I mean, Apollos was preaching from the Old Testament. He was preaching Christ from the Old Testament, proving that the Jesus who came in that first century in the flesh was the one pointed out to be the servant of God in Isaiah and the Messiah uh, of the Psalms and of the Pentateuch and all the rest of the Scriptures. But there's a second mystery, and that's the mystery of Christ in us by the Holy Spirit. Remember, there are two major mysteries of the Christian faith. One is Christ for us in his crucifixion, resurrection, ascension. Then there's Christ in us by the Spirit. And Priscilla and Aquila taught him that. And without it, we're going to see, we can't really do the work. Well, teachers need to be taught. Then notice, verses 27 through 28, Apollos is sent on to do some greater work in other places. Teachers need to be encouraged. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him, verse 27, and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. So they encouraged him to go, and they commended him to be received. The church does this. You know, in the old days, you'd never move to another city without taking a letter of recommendation from your home church. And wherever you go, you would turn that letter in and say, here's what the brothers in Memphis are saying about me. And they're commending me to you as a brother, so please receive me as a brother. And you take that letter of recommendation. Well, today, we really should do the same thing. This church does it. A few other churches do it. Where when people come in to join Second Presbyterian Church, we always say, well, let's communicate back with the home church. And let's get a letter of recommendation for you to come here. 
we found out some interesting things when we've done that. <clears throat> but that's the way it should be done because we encourage teachers and we encourage people to go from one place to another. But certainly, if I'm asked to preach in another place, I should be commended, and I am, by this church to go to that place to, to teach. So I'm commended and encouraged by them to go teach. So wherever we can make connections and commend one another, that's what we do with our teachers. That's what they were doing with the, uh, with the great evangelist and teacher, Apollos. Teachers need to be encouraged. Now, let's look at verse, chapter 19. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits saying, I jure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But, when, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. All right, man, that's a good one right there. Make that your, make that your memory verse. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Gentlemen, what we're learning here is that Artemis meets Jesus by God's Spirit. Don't tell me the Word of God is not powerful. The Word of God affects the human conscience and the mind, and the Word of God is attended by the Spirit of God. And you can see it here in this text. The Spirit of God is essential to the carrying out of our ministry here in Memphis and around the world. It's essential to the training and rearing of our children. We must realize the necessity for the Spirit of God to go to work in our families and in our community and in our nation and our world. So first of all, Christians must receive His Spirit, verses 1 through 7. Christians must receive His Spirit. Notice that when Paul gets to Ephesus now, at the beginning of his third missionary journey, which we begin today, when Paul gets there, he runs into what appears to be the people who are taught by Paulus. So Apollos got corrected. Apollos began to teach the full gospel, including the work of Christ and the work of the Spirit. 
But he didn't get back to all of his disciples. So here you have some that would be called disciples of Jesus, but they didn't yet have the Spirit. Paul goes to them and says, have you received the Spirit? And why did he ask that? He could tell. There's a difference between a man who simply has all of his doctrinal ducks in a row and a man who is full of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And you can tell the difference. And there are some men who've got all the doctrines straight. There's not a thing that they believe theologically that's not supported by the Bible. But you don't sense any of the presence of the loving Spirit of Christ in them. And Paul went among them, and here were some people who had been taught doctrine about Jesus, and they had it. But they didn't have the life of Jesus. And you know what? There are men like that in churches all over the place who have the doctrine of Jesus Christ and don't have the life of Jesus Christ. And Paul just simply comes to them and says, Have you received the Spirit? And they honestly say, we never heard about that. And Paul's thinking to himself probably, yeah, I know, I could tell. Um, he said, would you like to receive the Spirit? Indeed. And he lays hands on them. And they receive the Spirit of God. Now, in their case, really what this is is Pentecost two. And so we're having the Asian Pentecost right there in Ephesus. Now, some have tried to argue, you know, every time you receive the Spirit, you should speak in tongues too. I don't think you can make that kind of argument out of, out of this this book, here you have an apostle going to a new area and we're showing that you must receive the Spirit and when you do, the power of God comes upon you. That's still true, whether we speak in tongues or not. But here you have a second Pentecost and they're baptized in the name of Christ, not just a baptism of repentance, but a baptism of fullness in the Spirit. And gentlemen, you need that. Not just repentance of your sins, not just a doctrinal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you need Christ himself to take up residence in your heart. And if you don't know anything about the Spirit, ask him to come. And you say, well, how can I receive him? The same way you receive Christ, by faith. And you pray, Holy Spirit, I I believe in you. I trust in you. Come and take over my life. That's exactly what happens here. Christians must receive his Spirit. Before we're going to have any impact on the world around us, we're only going to do it by the Spirit. Secondly, the Spirit is the one who empowers the teaching. And then notice that after this, he entered the synagogue for three months and spoke boldly. So the Spirit gives us boldness. That's how Paul had his boldness. By the Holy Spirit. That's the reason he could go to Corinth all by himself. 450,000 people. Slaves and prostitutes everywhere. Temple of Apollo. And preach Christ boldly. Even though inwardly trembling. Because of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, notice that uh, the Spirit gives us persuasive powers. Persuasion. He was reasoning and persuading them about what? The kingdom of God. So the Holy Spirit gives us the abilities to persuade. The Holy Spirit gives us passion about what we're talking about. We believe what we're talking about. And our hearts are attached to it. And He gives us reasoning and persuasive powers. Thirdly, the Spirit gives us perseverance. He was reasoning with them. They began speaking evil about the way. Notice we said this uh, before, that when Paul faced abuse, he would withdraw. So he would take all comers, all questions, no matter how sharp, no matter how pointed, he would take all questioners. But when they started to throw abuse on him, he would just simply slip away. That's the Jesus tactic as well. You notice those of you studying with us at Mark's Gospel last Sunday, Jesus withdrew when the Herodians and the Pharisees plotted to kill him. He just withdrew. 
He would take all comers until they become abusive, and then he just withdraws. Paul does the same thing. He gets it from Jesus. And so he'll stay in that synagogue, no matter what they say about him or the gospel, as long as they're reasonable and will listen and engage with him. But when they become abusive, he leaves. And where does he go? To a lecture hall, the lecture hall of Tyrannus. Tyrannus. And there he ministers for a good while, for two years. Uh, someone once count- calculated that over two years during the siestas, during the middle of the day when Paul would have been teaching, it was, about, it was over 3,000 hours of teaching that he gave that city over those two years. So that, look at this, all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. What does that mean? It means that Epaphras goes to Colossae, others go to other cities and radiate from this cultural center, and they take the gospel to all of Asia Minor. Wow, that was Paul's strategy from the first. So the Spirit, though, gives us boldness, persuasion, and perseverance. And then notice in verses 11 through 22 quickly, the Spirit transforms lives. First of all, in verses 11 through 16, the Spirit authenticates the teacher. If you want to know what makes you believable to your unbelieving friend, it is the Spirit himself who does that. He will authenticate you. Now, he may not take the, you know, the handkerchief out of your pocket and you touch it and it goes to someone who heals all their diseases. There's some who think they can still pull that one off. Good luck, as Calvin would say. Uh, but that's not the case. As in the, the time of Paul, he was authenticated because of the physical healing power that came out of his ministry. But with you, there's a healing of a different sort. People are drawn to you and they can hardly explain what it is. It's the Spirit of God who is drawing them. He authenticates you. Secondly, verse 17, notice that, it, that this exalts the Lord. And when someone tries to counterfeit you, back to verses 10, 11 through 16, look what happens to the son of Sceva, sons of Sceva. They end up naked, beaten up, you know, when they try to counterfeit the ministry of the gospel. So you're authenticated. The Lord is exalted. And thirdly, verses 18 through 22, he converts the hearers. And how are they converted? Well, they confess their sins and they divulge their evil practices. All of their stuff comes out on the table. And they've got all these magical arts, books on magical arts, all this new age stuff they've got. And they all bring it and they say, we're devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to purge our lives of this crap. And they bring it up and pile it up. And it's worth, it says here, 50,000 pieces of silver. That'd be about a million and a half dollars worth. A million and a half dollars worth of books piled up and roasted right there as a sacrifice to Christ. When the Holy Spirit gets hold of a life, he cleanses it of its foreign gods and everything connected with them. And when someone gets converted, you will know it because they will confess and divulge and they will repent and change their lives. That's powerful. But now, thirdly and lastly, notice that when Artemis meets Jesus, it's in the marketplace. So Artemis meets Jesus in the teaching of the word. Artemis meets Jesus in spiritual power. And Artemis meets Jesus right there in the marketplace. What kind of marketplace? Well, first of all, in the economic market marketplace. Look at verse 23. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis 
brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, which still stands, by the way. It holds about 25,000 people. Dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, that would be the, the uh, no, nobility, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, you got it, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus... Who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly." For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Here's what's happening. First of all, notice that the gospel hits the economic marketplace. There's a threat. It goes to the economic marketplace and there's a threat. And there's always a threat to your business and the way you're doing business. And the way this city does business and the way this city makes money, there's always going to be a threat by the gospel wherever you go in the world. And here it was going right to the heart of their tourist economy based upon their religious marketplace. And these people were burning a million and a half dollars worth of books. Believe me, they weren't going to the bookstore to buy any more either. And they were not buying the trinkets around the temple. And it, it created a huge threat. And then look at this pragmatic response. They start start the mob going. And they start getting people riled up. And the response is, hey, this is our business. And business is business. And this Christian thing is going to undermine our business. So instead of changing our business, instead of changing the marketplace itself, let's destroy Christianity. That's the pragmatic response. And in your life, instead of getting rid of the pornography, let's just get rid of Jesus when I want to use pornography. Instead of being faithful to my marriage, like the Bible says, let's just make me an exception to the Bible. We, we are always doing that, pragmatically destroying, trying to destroy Christianity rather than letting Christianity destroy our false gods. Here it is in the economic marketplace. Then secondly, verses 28 through 41, you have the political marketplace. What happens in the political marketplace? Well, you get the mob strategy. Blogs. 
the anonymous blogs. People can say whatever they want to say. Invent all their anger. Whatever their childhood problems were, take it out of this problem. It doesn't have to be rational. Just fire away. And a mob gets going. And you notice the text here says, they didn't even know why they were there. That's how mobs work. And if you get involved in a mob, and sometimes a mob is called the Republican Party, and sometimes it's called the Democratic Party. And those are nothing more than mobs. And Fox News is a mob leader. And MSNBC is a mob leader. They're all mobs. They're like blogs. They don't have to make any sense. They don't have any reasoned arguments. They just are working up a crowd into a frenzy so they can get a vote out of you. Or they can get you to watch it because that's kind of what you believe and you like somebody to be angry for you. It's people who have unresolved anger who go onto those stations and listen to angry people and it helps you vent your own unresolved anger. That's emotionally what's happening to you. And you stop thinking. After a while, you don't even know why you're tuned in. You're just enjoying the venom of the whole thing. You're not even thinking about Christian political science any longer. That's what happens in the political marketplace. And then notice, uh, lastly, that there's a civil response And Luke makes a big point of this. Let me just give these four to you. First of all, there's common sense. He says everybody knows that Ephesus has the temple, Diana. Those who want to be involved in that business can be involved in that business. Common sense. Y'all just chill out. Secondly, there's an assessment of charges. Basically, these men have not done anything wrong. Stop it. So there's a challenge back to the people saying these charges are frivolous. Thirdly, there's judicial process. And a civil person says, we have ways of dealing with this besides mobs. You can go on to a television station sometimes and find a a reasoned response, maybe PBS or somewhere else. You can actually engage a political discourse. You don't have to go the mob route. And he says here, there's judicial process. Take it to the courts. You got a problem? Take it to the courts. The Romans are known for the court system. And fourthly, look at the potential consequences, folks. These people are not wrong. Actually, you're wrong. And you're going to be charged with rioting if you don't watch out. Now, here's what Luke is saying. Everywhere the gospel has gone, it has upheld the civil order. And wherever the gospel has gone in the Roman Empire, it has been found to be innocent of insurrection. And you'll find that here and you'll find it in other places. Luke's making a point. The gospel is legal. The gospel is ethical. Besides the fact that the gospel will ultimately transform your life and give you eternal life in the presence of the living God. And so it's a commending of the gospel from city to city, from religion to religion, from nation to nation, from generation to generation. And may the teaching of the gospel continue to go forth through these very men in this room. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Paul's visit to Ephesus and his ministry there for several years. Thank you for the wonderful way in which you transformed that city by the power of your spirit and the teaching of your word. And we pray that that same transformation will take place in our lives and the lives of those around us, all for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Bless you, gents.